Our first reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 20. It's titled, Exhortation to Choose Life. I think you'll hear a bit more of that as we go along. Surely, this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today by loving the God you walk, loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and observing his commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your hearts turn away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him. For that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Amen. Our second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 10, verses 5 to 15. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, that the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart, who will descend, ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes in the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, 
and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Amen. Earlier this year, Danny Boyle celebrated 20 years since the release of his wonderfully surreal film, Trainspotting, by releasing T2, the Trainspotting sequel. Both films begin with um, poems, known as the, the two Choose Life monologues, which echo our reading from Deuteronomy this morning. I wondered about reading the one from the first film, and it had far too many rude words in it. Uh, so I'm reading the one from the second film with a, a couple of bits missed out. Choose life. Choose Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and hope that someone somewhere cares. Choose looking up old flames, wishing you'd done it all differently, and watching history repeat itself. Choose your future. Choose reality TV. Choose a zero-hour contract, a two-hour journey to work, and choose the same for your kids, only worse, and smother the pain with an unknown dose of an unknown drug made in somebody's kitchen. And then, take a deep breath. You're an addict, so be addicted. Just be addicted to something else. Choose the ones you love. Choose your future. Choose life. And this question of what it means to choose life runs through so much of our wrestling with what it means to be human. We come up with our answers as to what life will look like for us, and then we normalize them. And then we condemn those who choose differently writing off those who don't fit our or our society's definition of what an acceptable life must be. But who are we to choose? And who are we to decide? And on what basis do we write ourselves as normative and those who differ from us as aberrations? As Dawn said last week, one of the questions on which Christians have expended vast amounts of energy and time and effort over the last 2,000 years is this question of who's in and who's out and who gets to choose. And so we've drawn our theological lines in the sand beyond which we will not cross and we've erected our doctrinal boundaries to fence off those who don't see things as we do. And we have condemned into the outer darkness anyone not quite like us. But I suspect, of course, that underlying this question of who's in and who's out is an insecurity, a fear, perhaps, that if we fail to successfully define ourselves 
over and against the other, we may find ourselves on the wrong side of the line, fenced off from God's eternal truth, left languishing in the outer darkness. What if we find that we haven't chosen life after all? Which is probably why this question has mattered so much to so many and for so long. There is a lot riding on it. Who's in and who's out? And who gets to choose? I wonder if you can think of a time when someone has told you that by their understanding of salvation, you're out. I know I can. For me, the feeling of being excluded began in my teens when I was spending some time with Christians who had had a very definite conversion experience. You know the kind of thing. When someone can name the day, the hour, probably even the minute when they were saved. Whatever that might mean, of course. Well, for me, it was never so straightforward. I have no moment of salvation. It's really hard to say that. I'm almost afraid I can feel the waves of judgment coming towards me as I utter it. I have no place or time that I can pin my journey from darkness to light on. I've always felt somewhat left out when we sing that verse of my favorite hymn, which has those words, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. In my experience, I no more needed converting to the love of God than I needed converting to the love of my mother. I might need reminding of both from time to time, but I have always known them to be true. And so, one of my friends, who I respected at that time, told me that if I had no moment of conversion, I was not saved. I was, by his counting, out. Similarly with those who told me that unless I spoke in tongues, I did not have the Holy Spirit. Actually, at that point, I was using the practice of speaking in tongues as part of my private devotions, but I certainly wasn't going to go admitting it to them. More recently, I and others here have been told that we are outside of God's will and kingdom because of our positive position on same-sex marriage. And I have been told as minister that I will be judged harshly by God for leading his people into error. Mostly these days I don't bother arguing, but that doesn't stop the barbs hitting home sometimes. I mean, I know I think I'm right, but what if I'm not? I mean, I, I have been wrong before. I don't now think the same as I used to think ten years ago on a whole number of things. So I have to recognize that even though I now absolutely and definitively believe I'm right, ten years from now I may look back and shake my head on some issues. What if God is a God of judgment and I am displeasing him and he is in the process of putting me out? So, in my lesser moments, I comfort myself by, by, by reiterating my certainty that God is a God of love who draws all his dear children to himself and that there is nothing that I nor anyone else can do to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
And then I tell myself that those who are seeking to put me out are wrong. And that it's not I, but they who have missed the truth. And before I know it, and without realizing it, I start to put them out. Out of my mind, out of my life, out of my church, out of my faith. And all too quickly, I become the very person that I was trying to avoid being in the first place. Can you relate to this, or does this or something analogous to it ring true for you? Where, I wonder, would you draw the line? Who do you think is out if you are in? Well, all this talk of in and out takes us right to the heart of our reading this morning from Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, which we're in a summer series looking at this. Uh, Lloyd-Jones spent several years at Westminster Chapel preaching through Romans. You'll be glad that we're only going to be doing it for about six weeks, (laughs) and we're already halfway through. In today's passage, we encounter Paul grappling with a deep and profound problem, which is this. Why is it, he wonders, that most of his fellow Jews have failed to turn towards Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. From Paul's point of view, this is a very great conundrum. Since his own mystical encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, Paul, the Jewish Pharisee, had been convinced that in the person of Jesus Christ, God had drawn near to humanity to rescue people from the twin powers of sin and death. Through forgiveness and resurrection, people have been granted new life in all its fullness, offered as a free gift of grace without cost or condition. And so Paul had devoted himself to the proclamation of this good news, not just to his own people, but to those from the other ethnic groups throughout the Roman Empire, known collectively by the Jews as the Gentiles, or the non-Jews. The mystery for Paul, writing to the mostly Gentile church in Rome, is why it should be that his fellow Jews were proving harder to convince about Christ than their Gentile neighbours. Surely, thinks Paul, it really ought to be the other way round. After all, the leap from faithful Jew to faithful Jew who believes that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah is not such a great leap compared to emperor-worshipping Gentile to faithful Christian. And yet in his ministry, he was seeing emperor-worshipping Gentiles becoming faithful Christians hand over fist. What he was not seeing was many Jews embracing Jesus as the Messiah. So can it really be, wonders Paul, that the Gentiles are now in, all these other nations are now in, whilst the Jews, God's very own chosen people, are now out. Can that be the case? And this is the conundrum that lies behind his train of thought here in Romans. And so he begins by drawing a distinction between two different kinds of righteousness. On the one hand, he says, there is the righteousness that comes through the Torah, 
that is, through the Jewish law. And on the other hand, he says, there is righteousness that comes through faithfulness. Righteousness by law, righteousness by faith. And even as I say this, I can almost feel Martin Luther tapping me on the shoulder, reminding me that 2017 is the 500th anniversary of his decisive actions that led to the European Reformation, in which he accused the church of his day of having adopted a gospel of righteousness by law, righteousness by works, in which people were expected to earn their salvation by paying priests for indulgences for their sins. Well, it's a funding strategy. What do you think, Howard? Shall we start it here? Luther's point was that forgiveness for sins should come by faith alone, not by any action on the part of individuals or the church. And certainly in the context of the corruption of the medieval church, where people were just asked to give money to the church in exchange for release from their sins, Luther was, so to speak, on the money in his critique. And of course, the most influential text on Luther was, you guessed it, Paul's letter to the Romans. Luther equated Paul's language of the righteousness that comes through the law with the Roman Catholic practice of selling salvation in the form of indulgences. Against this, the righteousness that comes through faith was understood by Luther and those who followed him as being the faithfulness of the Reformation churches in their teaching of faith alone as the basis of salvation. In other words, Luther used this passage and others like it to argue that the Roman Catholic Church was now excluded from God's covenant because in their works they were denying the grace of God. And historically speaking, this is all well and good. At least it is if you're Protestants like us. But of course, none of this was what Paul was actually saying in Romans. Paul was writing in the first century, not the 16th, and he was addressing the issue of Judaism and the law of Moses, not Roman Catholicism and the infallibility of the Pope. We're on dangerous ground here. If we start to equate Luther's denunciation of the faith of Rome with Paul's exploration of the lack of Christian faith of the Jews, I'm afraid that way lies Europe's horrific history of anti-Semitism. Here's the crucial point. Paul was not seeking to write the Jews out of the covenant. He certainly wasn't seeking to write them out of the covenant because of their unwillingness to embrace Christ as their Messiah. And he was not seeking to write them out of God's grace because of their ongoing adherence to the Torah laws of their ancestor Moses. If anything, Paul was arguing the exact opposite of this. He cannot and will not accept that the inclusion of the other nations, the Gentiles, into the covenant of God through Christ, he won't accept that the inclusion of the Gentiles has resulted in the automatic and wholesale write-off of God's chosen nation of Israel. For Paul, 
the inclusion of the Gentiles expands Israel, it does not annihilate it. Those who live by the Torah, by the law, those who keep the commands of the covenant, can, thinks Paul, still find life in doing this. The keeping of the law is not a curse from which release is needed. Many Christians through European history of the last 500 years have regarded the Jewish law as a curse from which people need to be saved. That is contrary to what Paul is doing in Romans. However, Paul does admit that the Torah law, whilst not a curse, is incomplete. For Paul, the law finds its final fulfillment in Christ as the doing of faith in the law finds its perfect partner in belief in the new life that comes into being in Christ Jesus. And all through this complicated passage, and well done Libby for reading it so beautifully because this is not an easy passage to articulate, all through this passage there is a kind of dance between these two concepts of doing and believing as they move in and out and round and round each other. So confessing with the lips, which is something you do, is paired with believing in the heart, which is something that wells up by this gift of the Spirit, as the actions of the mouth in proclamation find fulfillment in heartfelt faith in Christ Jesus. Doing and believing are not, in Paul's thought, mutually exclusive polar opposites. Rather, they are partners, each pointing to the other. So the faithful behaviour of Paul's fellow Jews, originating in obedience to the covenant laws of Moses, points to faith in the new life that comes through the resurrection of Christ. And similarly, faith in Christ points then to faithful action in the proclamation of the good news that has been received. This is not, therefore, about the exclusion of the Jews in favour of the Gentiles, not at all. It is rather about Paul's hope and expectation that the faithful response of the Gentiles to the gospel of Christ will circle back through their faithful proclamation of a gospel to all people to ultimately include the Jews as well. As Paul is at pains to say, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. So the truly faithful response to the gospel of Christ is to become the one who walks on Mount Zion, bringing good news to those who have not yet seen and grasped the universal gospel of God drawing near to humanity in the person of Jesus. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news, is the Old Testament text Paul quotes at this point. So are we the Gentiles? Are we in? Then our job is to extend that invitation, not to put a fence around ourselves to keep others out and keep ourselves holy. But Paul has a further problem that he's addressing here in Romans. As with most of his letters, he's writing to address a particular problem in the congregation. 
I mean, Paul's congregations always seem to me to be something of a nightmare. And I've always taken great comfort from the fact that the people Paul is writing to always seem to be constantly on the edge of making a total hash of things. And it does rather give me hope. Anyway, the problem in Rome seems to have been that there's someone in the congregation there who is trying to persuade the Gentile converts that in order to be properly saved, properly in, they need to start adopting the practices and requirements of the Jewish law. This person was almost certainly a Jewish convert to following Christ. But unlike Paul, they thought that when Gentiles started to follow Christ, they needed to become, in effect, God-fearing Jews if they were to follow the Jewish Messiah of Jesus. And we know from Paul's other writings and from some of the stories we meet in the book of Acts that if ever there was an issue which put Paul's back up, it was this one. His conviction that the Spirit of Christ has been poured out on all flesh equally, whether that be Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, it led him to a profound conviction that whilst there was nothing wrong with a Jewish Christian keeping the Jewish law, it was certainly contrary to God's gracious reaching out to humanity in Christ for Gentiles to be made to keep it. Whilst the law may be a blessing to the Jews, it is nothing but a huge diversion for the Gentiles. Have you ever wondered if, as Christians, we ought to be keeping the Ten Commandments? I hear it sometimes that Christians should be keeping the Ten Commandments, which are at the root of the Torah law. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, no, we shouldn't be keeping the Ten Commandments because that is tying ourselves to the Jewish law, which is the very thing Paul wants not to happen. Now, it may be that the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us leads us into works of righteousness that come from faith, which far exceed any demands on our life that we may find in the Torah and in the Ten Commandments. But that is not the same thing as keeping the Ten Commandments. Do you see the difference? Paul is there with this too. But Paul goes further. He says that the Torah law can become a diversion for the Jews too if they hang their righteousness on it rather than on faith in Christ. Good works, whether they be works of the law or other faithful responses to God's calling, must follow and spring from a person's faith. They do not precede it. Good works are not a condition of faith. And so Paul is very clear. There is no action necessary on the part of humans that can summon up the presence of Christ. We do not need to indulge in mystical visions or esoteric practices to ascend to the heavens, to bring Christ down to the earth. Is the only way you can have the Spirit if you engage in the ecstatic practice of speaking in tongues? No, it is not. The Spirit is with us. He is already here. And we do not need to deny ourselves or mortify our bodies to descend to the depths, to raise Christ from the underworld. Do we need that moment of conversion that we are nothing but a miserable worm before we turn to Christ? No. That may be the experience of some, but it is not necessary 
in order to know Christ with us. He is already raised and present with us by his Spirit, on our lips and in our hearts, stirring us to works of faithful obedience to the calling of his Spirit. So where does this leave us? Where are we in our quest to know who's in and who's out? Are we any clearer about where we should draw that line or erect our boundary fence or build our wall around the faithful? Do we have a clearer picture of who God would have us exclude? Are we any more certain of our own righteousness? Well, taking that last one first, are we any more certain of our own righteousness? I hope the answer is yes. If you have ever had cause to doubt your own place within the love of God, I hope you can hear clearly from Paul's letter to the Romans that your value to God does not depend on your own appreciation or understanding of your eternal worth. You are loved by God who has come near to us in Christ, as close as the words on our lips and the secret stirrings of our hearts. The Lord is with you. And with regards to who's in and who's out, I think Paul's point is quite clear. Whoever we might think is out is actually in. Wherever we would draw the boundary, God redraws it wider. And when we seek to impose our favoured, carefully selected beliefs and doctrines on people in order to ensure their acceptability to God, we fall into the trap of the false teacher in Rome seeking to impose the Jewish law on Gentile converts. But Simon, I hear you cry, surely there must be some limits to the love of God. What about other faiths? What about the worst of sinners? What about, well, you can fill in the next blank. I think that for Paul, it was of first importance that God's faithfulness to his people did not fail. And if God is faithful, even to those who have rejected the Messiah, then God is faithful to all that he has made. This, I dare to suggest, is at the heart of the gospel of Christ. Jesus died for all and is raised for all, that all may have life. Over the next few days and weeks, some very big choices will have to be made by President Trump and Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping and others, choices of life and death. They, like each one of us, will have to decide where they will draw the line, who they will condemn, and on what basis. But their choice on the international stage is, of course, merely an extension of the individual and communal choices that confront each one of us in our own more parochial circumstances. In a democracy, we take pride in the fact that we get the leaders we choose. But of course, that might also mean that we get the leaders we deserve. And whether the subject is membership of a union of countries, or how we will define and defend our borders, or who is welcome in our cities, our homes, and our churches, the choice remains the same. Who's in? And who are we going to keep out? 
how we respond, how we respond to that choice in our living and praying and voting has a direct effect on the world. The residents of Charlottesville are facing that choice today as they take centre stage in the all-too-literal battle between who's in and who's out. Clashes of ideology can quickly become murderous as people choose death as the path to victory. And as the people of God, we are called to live into being in our world the startling reality that in Christ there are no outsiders. So the question before us then today is what are we going to do about it? How are we going to live this into being? How are we going to respond? And I'm going to leave that hanging because that's something that each of us must decide for ourselves as we ponder this. But as we close, we need to hear the call of Moses. Choose life so that you may live. And let's join in prayer together. God of all creation, builder, restorer, and nurturer, we have come to this place after another week of living and being to worship you. We come to you now with prayers for the world in which we find many delights, but also many hardships. A fractured world, still reflecting your glory, but in broken shards, not a complete mirror. We pray for those affected by the fires across Central Europe, fires which are the result of scorching temperatures and that point to a world whose careful balance has been altered. May all of us who have the power to change our habits of consumption and wastage be challenged and hear the call, choose life so that you may live. God of all people, we pray for those in the United States and particularly in Charlottesville where race riots have erupted over the last few days. We pray for those in leadership there, for Governor McAuliffe, President Trump, law officials and community leaders. We pray that they will seek to unite and not divide, disarm, not incite, love, not hate. We pray for those who have been physically injured and those emotionally battered, and that all those hear the call, choose life so that you may live. God of peace, we lift our conflicted world in hands weighed heavy with concern. For Israel and Palestine, for the Korean Peninsula, for Syria, Libya, Kenya, Yemen, Venezuela, for the countries and lives that never make it onto our new sources, but for which we care deeply about and for which your heart breaks. We pray for the real people who live, work, play, raise families, struggle and grieve in the many areas of conflict the world over. We pray that through it all, they will hear the call, choose life so that you may live. God of justice, we commit ourselves again to the prayer which Jesus taught us, may your kingdom come. In both our local and global communities, inequality still remains tangibly present. 
In the UK, we pray for those caught up in modern-day slavery and the alarming statistics that have been released this week. Convict us when we think of those affected only as numbers and rise up a people to challenge our government to end this assault. For the 70 countries where it is still illegal to be lesbian or gay, and for the nine where it is still punishable by death. For Australia who face more uncertainty around the legal rights of those wishing to marry. For the countless nations who still persecute, judge, and restrict medical access for trans people. Lord, we cry out for those caught in the corrupt systems of our fallen world. May they have the chance to answer the call, choose life so that you may live. God of London, of Bloomsbury, of our local communities and lives, we pray for ourselves and for each other, for the hardships that we bear, but also the pleasures that we find joy in. Thank you for this community of your people who have committed to be here in this place, to seek and build your kingdom. Encourage us when we stumble, delight in us when we succeed, Guide us to hear and answer the call. Choose life so that you might live. Amen.